This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us again. How can a man be saved from his sin? It is a very simple question with a simple answer, right? Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That's what the Apostle Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer. But what happens when we read the epistle of James? James 2.24 says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, even though Paul reiterates in Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Well, which book of the Bible do we believe here? Are we justified before God by faith alone in Christ alone? Or are we justified before God by works and not by faith alone, as James says? It is a really classic argument that has to be answered again. And we're going to talk about it today with Chris Bruno. He serves as assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis and is out with the book we're going to discuss, Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate. Great to have you with us, Chris. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. I know this has been a very long-standing debate in Christendom, but it needs to be addressed, doesn't it, for every generation, because there are always people who come along, Christians who come along and say, hey, this is a new problem. What do I do about reconciling Paul with James? Yeah, absolutely. This is a a discussion that comes up in generation after generation, century after century, and uh, we need to address it in a way that's clear and uh, concise in our context. Right. So let's talk a little bit about this debate, because you have, as I mentioned before, Paul uh, in many, many places in the Bible talking about the gospel of grace, that we are justified by faith in Christ, not by our good works. Then you have James making a a statement like I just read from James chapter two. How do we begin to understand how we can reconcile those statements when we look at the Bible as a whole? Yeah, I, I think there's lots of pieces to that puzzle. I mean, one place that I started with is by looking at how they both read Genesis 15:6. So they're both reading the Old Testament and pointing to Abraham's justifying faith. So in Genesis 15:6, um, it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Yes. So both Paul and James point to that to ground justification by faith in the Old Testament in some way. But it's interesting that they're they're looking at different points in Abraham's life. And so as we start to peel back that onion I think we start to see how they're, uh, Paul and James are, are dealing with different opponents. And that's when we really get at the heart of why they are different and why they sound so different, because they're dealing with different challenges to the faith. Yeah. Now, when you talk about the fact that both Paul and James are grounding their understanding in the Old Testament, but looking at different points in Abraham's life, what is the point at which Paul is dealing with Abraham's life versus the point in Abraham's life that James is dealing with? Yeah, that's a good follow-up. So Paul is dealing with uh, Genesis 15-6, kind of looking forward. So in Genesis 15, uh, this is just a couple of chapters after we first meet Abraham, and it's the first clear statement of Abraham's faith, the first clear affirmation that Abraham had faith in God's promises. Right. 
And so Abraham is counted righteous. That's just another way to talk about justified. Yes. So this is a clear statement of Abraham's justification, and it's kind of looking forward. There's, you know, 10 more chapters of Abraham's life that follow after this. So Paul's standing in Genesis 15, 6, looking forward. James uh, is kind of standing in Genesis 22, looking backward. In Genesis 22, uh, Abraham had brought Isaac up on the mountain, and he bound him and was ready to sacrifice him. Yep. And in the Abraham story, that's kind of the fundamental example of Abraham's obedience. So Paul is looking forward. James is looking backward from Genesis 22 back to Genesis 15. And he's saying, essentially, here is how Abraham's faith in Genesis 15 was displayed to be true. His, his obedient actions in Genesis 22. Right. So this is very interesting because when you go back to Luther calling the, the, the book of James an epistle of straw, uh, obviously Luther was yeah. the one, you know, he's the one we go back to when we talk about the big fight over the meaning of justification in, in Romans chapter one. But what yeah. are we to make of that, that Luther did not seem to understand that or at least rejected the idea that James could be reconciled with Paul in, in the New Testament? Yeah, as I started to work on the book and really dug into Luther a little more, um, on the one hand, Luther did say that. He called James an epistle of straw that has nothing of the gospel about it. Yes. But on the other hand, um, what he meant by that, and I don't want to say he, should, he was right in saying that. I disagree with, with what he's saying there. Right. But, but what he meant was that this is a, a book in the Bible that doesn't have as much as many clear statements about the gospel as Galatians and Romans do. So he, he never kicked it out of the canon altogether and said this is not scripture. But what he did do is say the gospel is not as clear in James as it is in other places. Yeah. But but even there, I, I'm not loving that because I, I think the gospel is clear in James, especially when you're thinking big picture faith in Jesus Christ and the results of the gospel in our lives. So while Luther did have some less than flattering things to say about James, he did uh, include it in the canon. And not only that, but he also said some pretty strong things about the necessity of faith and works going together. Mm. In his preface to his commentary on Romans, he said something like, you know, just as, just as light and heat go together, faith and works are inevitably connected. Yes. So while he, he didn't love the Epistle of James, he said some things that sounded a lot like James. Right. So how how much agreement is there when you look through church history on this point that many, you know, evangelical Protestant theologians will make, I think rightly so, that James is making the point that it's faith alone that saves us, but faith that really is genuine will never be alone. Faith, real faith in Jesus Christ will always be accompanied by works. And we can point back to Jesus's words about if we are connected to the vine, if we have a, a fruit tree, for example, we'll have good fruit if we are a good tree. So how how much agreement has there been throughout church history on that point? Well, certainly uh, most, if not all, Christian teachers, I shouldn't say all, but certainly most Christian teachers throughout the centuries have seen the necessity of both faith and works in the life of a true Christian. So nobody has ever argued, at least any Orthodox teacher, has argued that faith is not part of salvation or justification. Right. right. And very few have argued that good works are irrelevant to the Christian life. 
Now, now the trick is how do we put these together? And much of the conversation in the Reformation centered around that point. How does justification work um, in light of our transformation? So if you go all the way back to the, the early centuries, uh, Augustine was not not as clear as some evangelical Protestants wish he would be. At times, he kind of blurs the line between at least faith and love. Hmm. But what we can say is throughout the centuries, um, most Christian teachers have seen faith and works as uh, somehow distinct but inseparable parts of the Christian life. And the great uh, rediscovery of the Reformation is really seeing how those two things fit together in in kind of a sequence. Right. Well, the faith working through love, isn't that more of what is emphasized in Catholicism without yet getting into the issue of justification, which I want to do? But isn't that more of something that's emphasized with Catholic theologians, faith working through love? Yeah, I I think many Catholic theologians will argue, you know, faith working through love is um, how we are justified. Right. So that justification is not a declaration as much as it's a process. But, but. Even some modern Catholic theologians have some ambiguity about that. Oh, really? That's interesting. Well, and again, we when we are talking about the proper definition of this or that, we, we don't go merely to great minds of the Church. We have to first and foremost go to Scripture. So when you're looking at the actual passages, is it not the case that overwhelmingly the Bible over and over and over from beginning to end teaches justification by faith? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's... From Genesis fifteen six to the passages in Paul's letters that we were talking about in Galatians and Romans and other places, Ephesians two, you know, we are justified by faith alone. Yep, so we absolutely. Are declared righteous through faith alone. Well, and I want to pick up on this conversation when we come back. Chris Bruno, our guest, Paul versus James is his book. We'll come back right after this. When Julia ended a bad relationship, she found out she was pregnant. After the father told her to get an abortion, this mom was confused and didn't know what to do or who to talk to. I just knew that if I got an abortion, a part of me would be broken. Julia was referred to a preborn center where she was counseled and supported with the strength that she needed to choose life. I couldn't imagine my life without him. Because of them, he's here. We're going to get through it and it's going to be okay. Preborn centers provide hope, love, free ultrasounds, and the gospel of Jesus Christ to moms like Julia. Preborn truly is the alternative to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, 855-402-2229, or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new health care program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the health care program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a health care sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start 
start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. Great to have you with us and great to be talking with Chris Bruno. He is Assistant Professor of New Testament and Greek at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis and author of Paul versus James, What We've Been Missing in the Faith and Works Debate. Since you are a man who understands Greek, this is really going to help me in this next section of the interview, Chris, because we go back to Luther. We were talking about Luther a little bit in the Doctrine of Justification, and I know you can delineate this a lot further than I'm going to put it, but for example, we, we think of Luther in his discovery of justification by faith alone or rediscovery of justification by faith alone when he was studying this. Now, the Latin word for justification really implied, as I understand it, this idea that you are made righteous. But Luther then looked at the Greek word and the Greek word was more clear that we are declared righteous. How critical is that to the debate, the difference between the Greek and the Latin when you're looking at Romans one seventeen? Yeah, well, I think when you if you go to the Greek... Virtually all Greek scholars agree um, that the word uh, to justify, dikaiao is the Greek word, means to declare righteous, to pronounce righteous, not to make righteous. So it's referring to a status. It's referring to a declaration. It's a it's a law court term. Yes. So. Uh, when we think of a judge making a pronouncement, he's declaring somebody's legal status. Um, and so that's really important to understand. I, I think the Latin, you're right, was ambiguous at best. Um, so Luther and the other reformers, going back to the, the Greek, really helped clarify, and then the, the 500 years of Greek study that we've had since then has helped to clarify the meaning of this word. It, it's very clear. It's to declare righteous not to make righteous. Right. Now, is that the same term? I know that you don't you don't have in Genesis 15, 6, it would be Hebrew, right, instead of Greek. But is that similar, at least, to the word that is used to describe Abraham had faith and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Is that the same root yeah. word? Okay. Yes, same root word. So in Hebrew, it would be sadiq, and then it's translated uh, into the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. So this is the Bible that the the earliest Christians were reading right. uh, that you know, when when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, they're they're typically quoting some version of what we call the Septuagint, which is just the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it's the same word. So dikaiao, dikaiosune, they all have the same root. So Genesis fifteen six um, is quoted by Paul and James because it's talking about justification. Right. So why is it when we go back to the period of the Reformation, there were lots of layers of things, obviously, but if it was made clear that that word in the Greek meant to declare righteous and it was a forensic standing that the sinner would have before God because of the work of Jesus Christ, why was there such a battle? You would think if the, the Roman Catholic Church got a better translation that they might reconsider their doctrine of justification. But to what do you attribute their unwillingness to change their position? That's a great question, um, and but I want to be careful here. But tricky, the tricky thing about the Roman Catholic Church is 
so often they're, they're just not able to change um, because of the way their magisterium is set up and yeah. the way that their their councils are set up. So they, it's really hard to, to change things. So I alluded to the fact earlier that you know some Roman Catholics are kind of wobbling on this. If you go all the way back to, uh, I was just reading this a few days ago, in 1983, um, Pope John Paul II was addressing these German bishops, and he essentially said, you know, Martin Luther had a point. Mm. <laughs> but that, that's... <laughs> He had a point. He couldn't couldn't actually change anything. He said he was worthy to be listened to, something along those lines. So uh, I can't speak to why and how the the mechanics of what it would take to actually change. So it's interesting to see, you know, as Roman Catholics are coming back to the Bible, they're saying, well, maybe justification by faith is something, but but there's all these other layers of implications and how do we change that and what does faith mean and what does justification mean. So... I'm certainly no expert on Roman Catholic theology, so I should probably stop now. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. I understand. The wheels move slowly. But it's interesting um, when we're talking about the role of works. One of the comments that a lot of people have been making over the last, I would say, maybe 10 years is noticing that there seems to be something of an antinomian impulse that is showing up in certain sectors of evangelicalism. In other words, the idea that I can pray a prayer, ask Jesus into my heart, once saved, always saved. And, you know, works doesn't save us. And so we don't have to actually you know, pursue holiness because then you're just making it all about works. What do you think about the flip side of that? Do you think that that has become a problem, and if so, why? Yeah, well, I, I think it's, it's, it's always been a problem in some form or fashion in the Church. And, and that's the exact thing that James is trying to address. Yes. That, uh, you know, there are some who say, as long as I believe the right things or or say the right things, I believe that God is one, James 2 says. Yes. Well, good job. But the demons also believe this, and the demons tremble, so they really believe it in some way, but it's not transforming them. It's not a real trust in that God. So saving faith is not simply believing the right things. Yes. And so we've, we've kind of intellectualized the faith in, in the way that as long as we're saying the right things, or we come forward at the altar call, or we sign a decision card, or, you know, we do X, Y, or Z things, and then we check off the box and we're good. So, yeah, I think that's a perennial problem. So it's coming up again, I'm sure, in the Church today, as people want to, we want to have some kind of, like, assurance that we're okay without actually giving our lives to Jesus. Mm, Yeah, Um, that's true. That's always been an issue, and so that's that's exactly what James is fighting against, this, this idea of a fake faith. And that's what I tell people. When James says, uh, we are not justified by faith alone, that, that's jarring. Like, that, that's, how can you say that? It is. But you have to understand what he means by faith alone. You almost have to put, like, scare quotes around it. Yeah. <laughs> by faith alone. He doesn't mean what we mean by faith alone. He means this, uh, you know, empty intellectual assent. Yes. That's faith alone. Right. You can almost replace that. We're not justified by empty intellectual assent. Yeah, and not only James is, is the one addressing it, but Paul is the one addressing it. Romans 6. I mean, are we to yeah. go and just sin? May it never be. I mean, he's making the exact same point, so they have a point of commonality right there. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, and, and that's one of the points I make in the book is, you know, 
James and Paul both agree that justifying faith can never remain alone. They use different language, and they're fighting different opponents, but they're, they're both really making the same point, that when we are truly justified in Christ, when we have that status, because we're united to Christ, our union with Christ is also going to result in transformation. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. So when you're talking about some of these points about justification, as you do in the book, when you discuss it as forensic and eschatological and effective and covenantal and Trinitarian, all of which is really important. When you say it's eschatological, I'm curious about that description, because in what way would you say justification is eschatological? Yeah, so the way that I, I talk about it, and this is not original with me, many use, many others use this language, is that it's an end-time declaration brought back into the present. Great. So, so God's final declaration on the Day of Judgment for all who are in Christ is righteous, justified. So God brings that end-of-time declaration into the present because of our present union with Christ. So justification is always and ever rooted in union with Christ. It's always rooted in Christ and His righteousness. It is. But when we're united to Him, then we receive that status that He has. So that's the the end-of-time declaration. But the glory of the Gospel is that that end-of-time declaration is brought into the present now, so we can have true—this is where the doctrine of assurance comes from. Yes. Because we can— see now, we can know now because of our union with Christ, that that final judgment will not be a day of judgment, of, you know, retribution and judgment for us, but it'll be a day of glorious uh, reunion with Christ. That's so great. So what does that mean for the pastor in the pulpit? You talk about this also. How should that affect preaching when we're understanding faith and works in a biblical sense? Because, you know, this is a day and age where people oftentimes will walk into their church and they'll hear 10 great points for daily living or something a little bit, you know, Dr. Phil-like rather than really rigorous (laughs) theology. But I mean, what knowing this, what you've been outlining and what you outline in your book, what difference should that make when, you know, the pastor gets in the pulpit and is trying to bring the Word of God to the congregation. Yeah, well, I think one thing that a pastor should be aware of is, you know, which of these two ditches are his people tending to struggle toward? Probably in any congregation, there's people who are on either ditch. So the ditch of kind of empty faith that James is fighting against, as long as we say the right things, then it doesn't matter how we live, we're good. Or there there may be people who are struggling with uh, works righteousness. So, kind of, as long as we do the right things, then we're good. Or you have to do a certain number of good works to, to work your way into heaven so that God will accept you. God helps those who helps them, help themselves, that, that kind of mentality. Yeah, yeah. So those two ditches are always present in the church. It's, an, it's an important for a pastor to know kind of where his people are struggling with it. And, and, and it's usually not quite that, you know, stark. Uh, where people will say, you know, Pastor, I think I'm saved by works. But we'll have this tendency to not think that we're good enough and that, or that God won't accept us unless we do this much, unless we give this much, unless we, you know, complete this checklist. Yes. Right. Um, and for those kind of people, they just need to hear you're justified in Christ by faith. You're united to Christ by faith. You're accepted. You have the status righteous. Yes. 
Stop striving. Trust Christ. I love and that. Note on the flip side as well, who are struggling with, you know, yeah. I'm just checking a box. I've got my bases covered. I don't care what I do on yeah, the weekends. Exactly. Well, Chris Bruno, the name of the book is Paul versus James. Wonderful book. And thanks so much, Chris. It was great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. God bless you. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Proverbs twenty three twenty four says, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Great verse. But for a lot of Christian dads, being the spiritual leader of your household can be a bit of a daunting task. Our next guest, though, has some encouragement and advice for dads who are frustrated or just worn out. So joining me now is Jared Lopes, a Christian pastor, podcaster, and founder of DadTired.com, which is a nonprofit ministry focused on equipping men to lead their families. And we're talking about his book, just out called Dad Tired and Loving It, Stumbling Your Way to Spiritual Leadership. I love that title. And great to have you with us, Jared. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. Tell me a little bit about your Dad Tired movement. I know you've got this website, dadtired.com. Why Dad Tired? What was the inspiration behind that title? Yeah, well, uh, I always tell guys if they're doing it right, if they're really uh, stepping into the role as a husband and father uh, and man that God's called them to be, they should be exhausted. Um, and most guys really feel like, you know, they put in their 30, 40, 50, 60 hours a week at work and then come home and they kind of think, well, maybe this would be a good time to check out, sit on the couch, maybe watch a game. Um, but I always tell guys, like, but God's called us to something much bigger than that. And so your real uh, job actually starts when you get home and when you, you step in as the husband and father of your house. And so uh, if you're doing that, you're probably going to be exhausted. But your soul will not grow weary uh, as you're doing what the Lord's called you to do. That's awesome. How do you look at your role as a husband and a father in your home and tell other guys about that, how they should look at their homes from a Christian perspective and their own roles in their homes? Yeah, well, I think uh, God designed it where we're actually the spiritual leaders of our house. I think that um, things just work best when a man takes initiative in that way. And so for me, uh, I'm really thinking of myself as kind of the, the lead guy to follow Jesus and to fall in love with Jesus. Um, that doesn't mean I have all the answers. Um, I oftentimes will be hanging out with my kids and talking about the Lord, or we'll read Scripture together, and they'll ask a question that I have absolutely no idea what the answer is, and just be the first one to say, I don't know, let's look, let's look that up together and figure this out together. But um, really what I tell guys is like, for us, we need to be the first ones to take initiative. I want to be the first ones to sit down and pray. I want to be the first ones to open up the Bible. I want to be the first ones to get us up ready to go to church and be in community, um, but just leading an initiative. 
That's great. Yeah. And and yet you mentioned in the book that you had some difficulties when you first were married and trying to adjust to being married and your own family background. You know, for people who say, well, you've got to have it all together. Everything in your life has been perfect. Of course, you can do a perfect marriage, perfect father, all these kinds of things. You're a pastor. You have all this experience. But what has it been like for you to find your footing, as it were, as a husband, as a dad? Yeah, well, um, I, I mean, my upbringing was far from perfect. I grew up um, in a home with just my mom raising me and my sisters. My dad left when I was three. Um, and I remember even as a kid really thinking through um, how much I wish my dad was around. I remember even playing basketball in the driveway and imagining that my dad was sitting there coaching me and just being a part of my life uh, as a child and thinking, I can't wait to be a husband and a dad one day. Um, and just really be what I didn't have growing up. And um, so that was my upbringing. But then when I became a dad and a husband, um, I wasn't as good at it as I thought I would be. <laughs> uh, it was kind of a, a reality check for me. Um, I had kind of made up in my mind before I got married that I was just going to be this perfect husband and father. And um, it turns out I got pretty quick into marriage and fatherhood and realized, like, oh, I'm, I'm not perfect at this. I'm actually... Uh, in many ways, I felt like I was doing really terrible of a job as a husband and dad. Um, and there was one particular season in our marriage where I was actually really disconnected with my wife and with my kids. Um, I was going through a season of depression, just kind of figuring out what was next for me and my career. And um, I, I was just really far from the Lord, really far from my wife, my kids. She actually, my wife and I we were in the middle of a fight one time, and um, we had been fighting a lot during this particular season of our marriage. And uh, she was standing across from me in the room and her eyes started to fill up with tears. I had just said something to her that was hurtful on purpose as a young, immature husband and uh, man. I, I said something to her that was hurtful. And she said, Jared, I just want you to know I've been waking up every morning at 2 a.m. And I've been going to the living room and I've just been praying that God would capture your heart again. And that was really a wake up call for me. The Holy Spirit really used that in my life to figure out like, man, what am I doing as a man? And, uh, what am I doing as a husband? If, if I continue on this path, we're going to lead to divorce. So um, to say that, you know, I've, I've kind of had my life together and I grew up in this perfect home and know what I'm doing because I'm a pastor, that I mean, just far from the truth. I'm a broken man. <laughs> It's just been trying to stumble my way forward. Yeah. Well, I think we're all like that. <laughs> Women, yeah. men, we, yeah, I mean, we, if we weren't sinners and if we weren't broken on some level, we wouldn't need the Lord, would we? We'd have it all together. We could just That's do everything right. we wanted every day. But this is an important thing. You begin in this book rightly, I think, with the gospel and you stress how the gospel changes everything. What do you communicate to guys about starting with the gospel and grounding yourself in Jesus Christ really is the starting point for being able to be that spiritual leader in your home? Yeah, so the the biggest thing that I always try to get across to any guys is that we live in a much bigger story. Um, And that's hard to remember sometimes when we're just putting in our hours at work and we're trying to survive and pay bills and keep up with laundry and groceries and like soccer practice, you know, all the things that demand our time. Um, But we have to zoom out and have a bigger perspective that we're actually part of a way bigger story. And the bigger story is that God has not given up on humans uh, and that he is pursuing humanity and he's, he's redeeming all things back to himself. That's the good news of the gospel, that God didn't bail on us, but that he keeps pursuing us. I always say the Bible should be one page long, right? Like if we just read the first pages of scripture, God makes a perfect earth. We turn our backs on him. uh, And he should have and could have said, all right, I'm out. This didn't work out. I'm going to go start a new earth somewhere else. But 
the reason the Bible isn't one page long, it's thousands of pages long, is because God says, I'm going to make things the way they were, back to the way they were supposed to be. And, uh, and that's the story that we're part of. And then God says, okay, I'm going to redeem your heart. I want to take all the brokenness of your heart, husband and dad, and I want to make it new again. I want to take the broken parts of your marriage and your family and your community. And so this is like the first thing that we must understand is there's a way bigger story that God has invited us into. Um, and then what's really cool as a dad is to think, now God is doing that for my kids. He wants to take the brokenness in their hearts, and He wants to redeem their little hearts back to Himself, and He's using you to be a part of that. And that's really the foundation that we start with as dads. We're not just trying to behave well or like 10 quick tips to become a better dad. What we really want to understand is you're part of this huge, grand story that God has invited you into, that He's one, redeeming your heart, but also using you to redeem the hearts of your kids. Yes. Oh, for sure. What do you see as God wanting fathers to do in their homes when you talk about spiritual leadership and leading the home? And we understand that analogy in scripture about the husband and the wife and Christ and his bride. This is such an important thing. But from ter- in terms of what you should be doing day to day, I think there are a lot of people who say, practically speaking, should I be having devotions before breakfast, after lunch? When should I be doing that? How do I disciple my kids? What do I do, Jared? I want to be a good dad. I want to help my kids grow in Christ and make sure that they're really maturing in the faith, but I'm not really sure where to start. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I mean, uh, one, yes to all those things. Do a devotional before breakfast or after or before bed. You know, all of those would be fine. Like, one, just start. Just do something. Yeah, good. Uh, t- take initiative. That, that would be great. And your wife would be love that just for you to try something. Um, but a lot of guys in our community will say that, ask me that exact same question. You know, Jared, what do I do? What devotional should I read? What, what should I be going after? I always tell guys, discipleship happens in 30-second increments, usually, throughout the day. And so uh, if you think about Moses, what he said in Deuteronomy 6, that where whenever you wake up or whenever you're walking or eating or, like, whatever you're doing, impress these things of the kingdom onto your children. And really, that's what we do. So when I'm parenting my kids, I'm thinking through how many 30-second opportunities can I use throughout the day to point my kids to Jesus and the good news of the gospel. And so sometimes that, like last night, literally just last night, we were at soccer practice. I coached my son's soccer team, and it was just an, an amazing sunset. And I just leaned down and whispered to my son in his ear, I said, isn't God so creative? Look at that sunset that he made. It took about 10 seconds, you know, but just realizing this is an opportunity I can point my son back to Jesus. So whether it's admiring a sunset or us walking down and looking at ladybugs yep. or yep. it's forgiveness or whatever it is, I'm just using as many opportunities as I can according to him. I love it. Jared Lopes is with us, Dad Tired and Loving It, his book, and we'll come right back on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people and, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger or spiritual hunger is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa, on average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. 
uh, the church had about um, about a hundred people, and the the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible, and that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can. You know where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible League is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. You can be the answer to a Christian praying for God's word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and a matching grant will double your gift and help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today. Glad you're here and glad to be talking with Jared Lopes. He's a pastor and podcaster and founder of dadtired.com ministry focusing on equipping men to lead their families. His book is called Dad Tired and Loving It, Stumbling Your Way to Spiritual Leadership. Jared, you were talking about what I think is a really terrific idea to get started in terms of being a spiritual leader in your home. And that is when you're looking at discipling your kids, it happens, as you say, in 30 second increments and you're looking for all these opportunities to point your kids to the Lord. What have you found to be some of the more effective moments where you have interacted with your kids and tried to point them to the Lord in these short little bursts throughout the day? What stands out to you? Uh, there are two times, uh, I mean, you can use all kinds of opportunities, but some of the biggest ones are oftentimes when, one, my kids are needing forgiveness and when I'm needing forgiveness from my kids. And so Often, obviously, our kids are sinful. They've got sin in their human nature, and so they need to be forgiven often. And what I remind them all the time is, Daddy isn't going to stop forgiving you because God hasn't stopped forgiving Daddy. Perfect. Um, And so that's one opportunity. I'm just pointing them to the gospel in really quick, easy ways all the time. And then the other way uh, is when Daddy needs forgiveness, to come up to them and say, Listen, I, I failed you, or I failed your mom, or I failed our family. And uh, God, Daddy needs God to come and redeem the broken parts of his heart, too, and to fix the broken parts of his heart. So uh, I've asked God for forgiveness and to help make that new in me, and I just want to ask your forgiveness as well. And these are really practical ways to point our kids to realize, like, everyone in this family is in desperate need of the grace of Jesus. That's perfect. That's important because that matters a lot to kids when they see their parents repenting and needing forgiveness yep. from the Lord. That, that Sometimes that modeling can have an even bigger impact than simply teaching them the verse about forgiveness, but being, right. being able to back that up with your life. What about preparing yourself? Because I'm sure there are young guys who say, I want to get married someday. I want to have a family of my own. But how do I prepare myself as a Christian to be a leader? Because I don't feel like a leader. I'm not really maybe very talkative. I don't really interact very well. What would you say to that young man about preparing yourself to be a leader and really making sure that you are being discipled and that you're being built up in the Word of God? Yeah, well, first off, you know, leadership is 
often means taking initiative and being intentional. It doesn't mean that you're the most eloquent guy in the room or the loudest guy in the room or that you have the most theology uh, in the room, right? It just means that you're taking initiative and you're being intentional. So for the young guys, it's like, what do I, what can I do? Um, Put yourself around other people, specifically other men who are living out the way that you want to be married and the way that you want to father. I have just, I remember surrounding myself with guys in my church who are much, much older than me. And I just admired the way that they parented their kids and the way that they love their wives. And so I just as many times as they'd let me hang out and eat dinner with them and be around them, I wanted to do it so I could see, especially because I didn't have that growing up. So I just wanted to see what was it like for a man of God to lead his family. I think that's one of the most intentional things you can do is to be in Christian community where you can watch other people who are ahead of you live out where you want to be. That's important. Well, and this is something that you just brought up, which I think is very critical. When you say the greatest gift you can give your children is Jesus, and the best way to point them toward Jesus is by loving your wife like Jesus loves the church. What do you think about that particular subject? Because that might not necessarily come naturally. I know we all have our sins and we all have our weaknesses, but what is that looking like in your life? What do you tell guys to do in terms of loving their wives? And that's a really important means toward pointing your kids to Jesus. How does that practically work itself out? Yeah, well, the whole institution of marriage was designed by God to give the world a glimpse of His relentless love towards His bride, the Church. (laughs) And so for us as men, we get to display for our kids the love of God, the way that we love our bride. And so when I love my wife um, relentlessly and passionately and faithfully, I am showing them what God's love is like toward them. And so what would be really confusing to my kids is if I had conditions on my wife and said, well, I only love her when she makes me happy, or I only love her when she does the things that I want her to do, or if she doesn't do these things, I'm going to leave or treat her bad. That's an inaccurate view of God's love towards His bride. Right. And so this is why I say this is, the, this is the greatest picture you can give your kids of the gospel, is that they will see my love towards my wife being relentless and faithful and passionate, and hopefully that will point them back to the God that loves them relentlessly and passionately and faithfully, and really, vice versa. I mean, if we're honest, uh, it's my wife loving me and all my brokenness and all when I'm failing her and her being faithful towards me. Um, it's our marriage together that gives our kids a glimpse of the gospel. Yeah, that's great. What about the issue of sin and the issue of shame? You talk about this in the book as well. The man who says, you know, I have a lot of shame. I have a lot of sin in my life. I am not really a good example to my kids. I can't be a good Christian leader. What do you say to encourage that guy who may already be a Christian and has good intentions, but says, my life is such a mess, who am I to lead anybody? Yeah, well, I mean, that guy needs the gospel like all the rest of us. Um, So the good news for him, um, well, the bad news is he's made up a God in his head. And what he's made up in his head is, I can't lead my family because I'm too broken of a man, or I've got too much sin, or nobody really knows everything that I've done, so I'm not really worthy of leading my family towards a God that I don't even feel close to. That's the bad news. Um, and, and that's, frankly, 
just not the God of the Bible. Um, so the good news is, if we actually look at the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible has a reputation from the first pages to the last pages of using broken people to lead his people. Yeah. Um, and so that's the good news. Like, you're broken, and so was every other person in the scriptures that God used. And again, this isn't your story. This is God's story. So he's not looking for perfect people. He's the perfect Father. He's the perfect God. And he's going to use you and all your brokenness to continue to get his work done. And uh, so we don't focus on our shame. We focus on how good God is, and we don't focus on our sin. I always tell guys, you're thinking about your past a lot more than Jesus is. The good news of the gospel (laughs) is he's forgot about it, and he wants to continue to use you and your brokenness to do really big things in your family. Yeah. Now, what about the guy who really does need to deal with his sin, who really is involved in something that is serious and really needs to come back to the Lord for forgiveness in his own life? Because there are those cases as well. Yeah, so there's, uh, you know, there's the verses that say, um, you know, confess your sins to God, and He He is faithful and just to forgive you of all your unrighteousness. So, right, there's forgiveness that happens when we confess our sins to Christ. And a lot of guys say, well, I've confessed my sin to God a hundred times, and I still don't feel like I'm just, I'm in the place that I'm still carrying around shame and still caught up in my brokenness. But James says, confess your sins to one another Mm -hmm. that you might be healed. And so you may have already been forgiven, and yet you're still not experiencing healing. And so really there's guys like, if you're serious about leading your family, like confess your sin, whether that be to your wife, to a trusted brother, even to a counselor, and and figure out what would it look like for me to actually repent from my sin, to turn away from my sin, um, to deal with things that maybe have been tripping you up for years and years and years, so that... Uh, again, not so that you can feel all kinds of shame, but so that God's kindness can lead you towards healing so that you can be the man God's calling you to be. That's really important and a really good word. Something else you talk about, which I think is really, really critical, is the fact that our churches are filled with bored men. And I know there have been books and articles, lots has been said about the fact that a lot of men are bored in church. It's too feminine. And I agree in many instances. What do you tell that guy to do to encourage him to step out in faith and maybe have an adventure, have, you know, doing things that you might fail at? But how does that all tie together with being a spiritual leader? And and what do you advise guys to do in that regard if they're simply bored at church? Yeah, well, I think the conversation is even bigger than churches. Our churches, I agree, they can be kind of slanted towards women, and that's just because more women are showing up and being involved in churches than men are, frankly. Um, but it's bigger than just kind of our church services. It's this whole, the whole life of Christ. I think guys are just not finding adventure. And what's happening is churches are inviting them to, you know, set up chairs or to pass around a communion plate or offering or whatever. And that's just not that guys are looking for more than that when it comes to the kingdom. And, and we as church leaders aren't giving them invitations into stepping into something bigger. And so board men are dangerous men um, because they're going to look for adventure, and oftentimes they look for it in dumb places. (laughs) And so what we want to do is say, all right, what would it look like for you as the man of your family, the leader of your family, to lead your family into adventure in the kingdom? And so for this could look all kinds of ways. So for my wife and I, during a season of our life, we said, let's step into foster care and foster kids in our community. That was scary really, really scary and really hard, but that, it kind of gets those, you know, adrenaline juices going as a man to think this is scary, I'm going to step into something that's unknown, but I know I'm doing something bigger than myself. Um, Not everyone's fit for foster care, that's not, you know, the solution to everything, but for some, maybe, you know, it might be to foster kids. Now for us, it's what would it look like for us to be 
live as missionaries in our kingdom or in our neighborhood. Oh, that's great. That is so great. Well, people can find out more in Dad Tired and Loving It, the book from Jared Lopes. His website, of course, is dadtired.com. You can check that out as well. But Jared, so good to talk to you. Really appreciate your being with us today. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thanks for letting me be here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for coming. And we appreciate you listening as well to Janet Mefford today. We'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Mefford today has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.